the plots of our lives do not always develop from our intentions, but oftentimes appear as a flash of light that catches the eye, distracting us, and we divert from whatever crooked path we had been wandering. Today on Arts and Letters, we'll be talking with writer Ty Jagger about his book, Radio El Dorado. In a way, Radio El Dorado is a ghost story. And I guess that part of what I was thinking about is that even when we're alone, we are affected by others. Ty Jagger on Arts and Letters. From the studios of KUAR in Little Rock, I'm Jay Bradley Minnick, and welcome to Arts and Letters, a program providing opportunities for the celebration of the arts and humanities. Despite the, the fact that the story has a number of, you know, what you could call loud actions, there's the Mother's Day fire, there's the riot at Denver Pop, and those things are, are happening, but the tragic heart of the book is Esther's death. Today on Hearts and Letters, we'll be talking with writer Ty Jagger about his novel, Radio El Dorado, published by Braddock Avenue Books. A sprawling story about Alvin Wand, a down-on-his-luck widower, and his daughters, Vivi and Ursula, and his deceased wife, Esther, who haunts him like a flash of blue light. It's Esther's death that puts Alvin in the, the mental and emotional state that he's in. It's Esther's death that forces Vivi to decide that she wants to stay on the farm. Set against the cultural backdrop of the 60s is the Rocky Flats Mother's Day fire. We live in a world that is at once both heaven and hell. In a lot of ways, I think that's kind of the world that these characters are constantly navigating. And I hope if I did my job well, that they're never too situated in one or the other, that they've got their feet in both places. Ty Jagger, Radio El Dorado, on Arts and Letters. Ty Jagger, welcome. Thanks, Brad. <laughs> this book is called Radio El Dorado, um, but it's not really about radios, but it is kind of about signals and signs. Why did you call it Radio El Dorado? Well, it takes place in El Dorado Canyon, outside of Boulder in Colorado, and so the place name seemed of interest to me and the elements, as you said, signs and signals, and also the importance that music 
plays in the story. Radio El Dorado had a certain ring for me. And it's 1969. It's Mother's Day where this scene begins. And the main character, Alvin Wund, he has two daughters. He lives on a farm. And he has a kind of difficult relationship to his daughters, his deceased wife, and the company that he's working for. Could you set the story up for us? Um, as you said, it's 1969. It's Mother's Day. Alvin Wund works at the Rocky Flats nuclear plant where they make plutonium triggers. He is not a very ambitious man. He's let drink rule his life. His wife, who is recently deceased, weighs heavily on his conscience. He feels guilty, not for her death, but the fact that their relationship, which was difficult, that they never made amends. And she dies, and so he bears the weight of his shame, really. His two daughters, one is a musician artist, the other is just sort of a vagabond hippie. Vivi and Ursula. Yeah, Vivi and Ursula. His relationship to them, they recognize how he tested the patience of his wife and her kindness and love. And so Alvin's in this place where he doesn't take any pleasure from his job. He works the night shift and he likes the night shift because he can sort of do his own thing. He can have a few nips of Cuddy Sark. He can read dirty books. He can play cards with men. He can, you know, then drive around in a car and check off boxes on a, on a clipboard. He's not in a very good place. He's cast adrift after the death of his wife in particular. Situated on 400 acres of high plains northwest of Denver, the plant was a massive compound of cinder block and sheet metal. And during the work week, it bustled with energy, high production at low cost, bomb-making contracts with the Atomic Energy Commission. The plant was a foundry for plutonium triggers used in hydrogen bombs. Alvin knew the basics about the production process, though his job didn't require scientific knowledge. The production of the plutonium triggers was dirty and dangerous business, but his perfunctory faith in the system kept him from worry. Earlier the previous afternoon, Alvin had sat in the Rocky Flats lounge, sipping one beer after another. He would have preferred drinking at the Abyss back up in El Dorado Springs, but on Sundays, Harry didn't open until three. The Abyss was Alvin's favorite bar, but it wasn't what it once was. These days, it was overrun with long hairs and women that didn't have the decency to shave their legs or armpits. He had spent many a Mother's Day at the Abyss. Nearly 20 years before, he had burned the hell out of the hot dogs and hamburgers he had been grilling for a Mother's Day cookout. He had been in the sauce, but only to clean out the dregs of a terrible hangover. One thing led to the next. He insisted they go to the abyss, though Esther protested and her mother flat out refused. Soon after the eight, Esther was ready to leave, but he had cunningly kept the girls in quarters for the jukebox. They clamored to remain. Esther and Alvin ended up in a shouting match and he denied her the keys to the car. 
Too proud to ask for a ride, she and the girls have walked the mile home. He had woken up inside the car, the windows frosted over his leg in terrible pain. Pulling himself from the car, he saw that he had busted through his own damn fence. His leg broken, Esther and her mother spent the next day and a half trying to corral the escaped cattle. It was not the end of the world. Livestock did break the fence on occasion. This was one small humiliation added to the pile. Not until Esther was dying did Alvin realize that the pile was a mountain of shame and that they had been living in its shadow for years. This whole chapter seems to me as much about the issue of what was happening in terms of uh, plutonium as it is with guilt. I mean, he's, he's very guilty about his relationship with Esther. These things he thought as he listened to Johnny Cash singing the ballad of Ira Hayes on the jukebox. Alvin was two shots and two beers further into what promised to be a full-fledged afternoon when the barkeep extended the phone. Sounds important, old man. All old man, you. Alvin, we need you at the plant. It was Percy Miller, Alvin's boss. He made a face like a child forced to drink castor oil. Percy, to be honest, I've had more than a few. It's my day off, Mother's Day. He didn't know why he mentioned the holiday. Look, Alvin, we've got a fire, a big fire. I don't give a damn about your vices. Alvin gave the phone back to Wayne and muttered, They've got a fire? He threw a few dollars on the bar and walked toward the door, only to return and polish off his beer. Watch out for the blue light, Wayne said, making a joke about criticality he had heard the plant workers make. Alvin's hand shook. A fire. Didn't Percy realize it was Mother's Day? He looked Wayne in the eye and said, You're about as funny as the clap. You know, the Mother's Day fire really occurred. You know, it's a, an historical event that was kept under wraps for many years. People didn't know the true story. They didn't know that had this fire gone critical, which it was so close to doing, there would have been basically a, a small-scale Chernobyl outside of Denver, and it would have decimated the population because the winds that come off the Rockies move directly towards the Denver suburbs and then towards Denver. We're talking with writer Ty Jager about his novel, Radio El Dorado. We'll be back in a moment. I'm Jay Bradley Menick, and you're listening to Arts and Letters. Let's return to our discussion with writer Ty Jager. You did, though, in order to situate it in 1969, do significant research and significant research into this fire. How did you do the research? Because we have these visions of what it's like to be inside fighting a potential Chernobyl or Three Mile Island. But how did you do that? How did you find yourself inside this place with such vivid detail? Yeah, so knowing that the book was going to be set 
in El Dorado Springs. The Mother's Day fire, as it's come to be called, was not part of this, the story that I was intending to tell. But in wanting to delve deeper into place, I started doing research into what was happening in 1969 in Denver and the surrounding areas. And one of the things that I found was the Mother's Day fire that was at the Rocky Flats plant. Mm -hmm. The research that I did, Making a Real Killing, is a book by Len Acklin. It's subtitled Rocky Flats in the Nuclear West, which is a, it's a, a history of, of Rocky Flats. Also, the Carnegie Library in Boulder has a really, really extensive collection of oral histories all kinds of people that worked at the plant, politicians who tried to shut it down, politicians who were involved in starting it. And so me being in the building, where I really got access to that was people telling their stories. Through the oral histories. Through the oral histories. So Alvin's experience in the chapter where he's fighting the fire very much comes from a composite of true stories about guys who were security detail folks and went in and had to fight this fire. Let's listen to an oral history from Rob Newby, who fought the Rocky Flats Mother's Day fire. Now, I was involved in the, in the, in the uh, 1969 fire that occurred. I was in the building. At the guard station, Paul Brewer looked up from his game of solitaire. Production's down today. It's a safety first day. Paul, hesitant and embarrassed even when trying to be funny, leaned onto the window counter. He wore the same threadbare uniform and secondhand pistol that Alvin would have worn had it not been his day off. It sounds awful, Alvin. So what the hell do they want me for? It's the complex, Alvin. And from what I hear, the firemen they sent in are already hot. When I got there, uh, they had set up a perimeter around the building because people had to get in and out of the building. So uh, everybody that was going into the building had to go in with a self-contained breathing apparatus and a tank of air on your back and a, and a mask and, and uh, covered as well as you can and so, you know, the situation was that they had an on-site fire department that got hot, not temperature hot, but radiation hot from fighting this fire. And then they just started calling in guys who worked at the plant and Alvin, who had no training, who right. has no training. Right. He's not even a good security guard, <laughs> right? Like he's right. lazy. Alvin just wants to keep his head low and do his thing. And he gets called in. He knows that he's not trained. He knows enough to keep him out of some trouble. But then the situation requires he and his partner, Romy, to, to go in and fight this fire. But then there was some smoldering fire uh, on the inside of that. So we were, uh, teams of us were was in there uh, with little hand pumps. They could call in local fire departments, but then we've got a black eye. Alvin pulled the hip flask from beneath the seat and took a swig. They've had trouble getting a hold of other off-duty men, but I suspect they knew where to find you. 
Alvin held the flask out, but Paul begged off. How bad is it, really? Upper management's on the way. Alvin lit a cigar, and with his foot still on the brake, put the car in gear. I'm not properly trained. I tell you that much, Paul. Fire trucks sat on either end of the complex, diesel engines chortling. A perimeter of men and cones and yellow tape surrounded the building. Men in hard hats conferred in groups and shouted orders. The concrete and sheet metal building emanated heat. The smell of chemical burn hung in the air and Alvin imagined the building bubbling with toxins, plutonium, uranium, beryllium, and countless acids and solvents used to process the materials and clean the shop. Happy Mother's Day, Roman Nuremberg said. Romy wore a stained Broncos ball cap and he smelled of stale beer and sweat. When Esther died, it was Romy, his true friend, who came with a borrowed backhoe to dig her winter grave. Maybe the only courageous act of Alvin's life, he undertakes not wanting to do it. He, he knows that his life is on the line, and what I find interesting about the scene is that the range of, of emotions that Alvin goes through from feeling this deep, almost like brothers in arms kind of relationship with Romy and this connectedness to him, and then feeling fear, not wanting to be fighting the fire, but then feeling like he must, feeling like perhaps he's being punished in right. a way, right? And that his guilt from his marriage, he's at a place where he wonders for one moment if the best thing that could happen would be that he dies in this fire. Men hustled about the building like worker ants on a just-kicked anthill. They arrived with coveralls and air tanks, face masks, and fire extinguishers. Hulking forms in makeshift astronaut suits exited the building. Men removed their air masks, and the safety manager ran the Geiger counter up and down their bodies. I appreciate you showing on short notice it being a holiday and all, Percy Miller said. He tipped his bowler back, pushed up his shirt sleeves, and hitched his pants about his gut. 
We've got hot firemen and no others to replace them. Romy laughed nervously. You want us to go in, Percy? That's why I called, Roman. Percy dug a handkerchief from his back pocket and wiped sweat from his forehead and jowls. Safety officials escorted firemen away in pickup trucks. They're hot, Percy said. He stared at his handkerchief. They've been in there for hours. We don't have training for this, Alvin said. The words were out of his mouth, and then he was pulling one pair of coveralls over top of another. He was fitted with two pairs of rubber gloves, duct tape wound around the seam between the gloves and the coverall sleeves. I don't like this one bit, Romy. We'll show him, Alvin. Then we'll get us down to the abyss. Percy hovered over them, a hog scowl written across his face. As they were about to stick their heads inside masks attached to survive air packs, Romy said, it's the plenum filters we got concerned for. They burned goodbye Superior, Broomfield, Westminster, Federal Heights, and bye-bye Denver. Look out for the blue light, Alvin said. And then, of course, there's the the flash that he sees. And all of this manifests into him seeing the ghost of his wife. He took a deep breath before he pulled the mask over his head. They entered the double doors, and before they had a chance to take two steps, the doors closed behind them. They were submerged in an orange and gray sea of heat. Alarms echoed through the complex. Red lights flashed on the walls. Behind the four feet of suspect visibility, orange glowed in the distance. Alvin knew the complex well. On occasion, he had been given the nighttime assignment of burning documents, a suspicious detail, but he had never asked questions. Stepping as carefully as possible, they moved forward like soldiers expecting an ambush. They sprayed powder from their hand pumps. The alarms rang. Still, Alvin heard his own breath, labored and desperate. The hand pumps were soon finished. There were no more outside, and Alvin wondered why Percy had sent them on such a pointless errand, a self-guided tour of hell. When I went in, the, the, the big fire had been knocked down. And, but what, there were, there were some Benelux shielding on the, on the glove boxes. Benelux. It's, it's just a type of material uh, that, that, uh, that has no, that, that absorbs uh, nuclear things so they don't go bouncing all over the He wanted to cry out, but Romy grabbed his arm and led him to a magnesium bucket against the wall. They inched farther, gathering more buckets, dumping these on anything that burned. The buckets did not last. The Benelux line glove boxes looked like elevated plexiglass terrariums, glowing with heat. If the Benelux was burning, Alvin figured the fire had been raging for hours, maybe since the night before.
They walk side by side, not daring to lose each other in the smoke. Alvin swallowed whiskey bile and tugged at Romy's arm, leading him to a fire hose. Even Alvin knew that water was never used to fight a plutonium fire. If water pressure caused even the slightest collision between the buttons, it could ignite a chain reaction, a criticality, an uncontained fire, the end. Alvin looked up to the roof, toward the filters. They seemed a relatively thin wall of protection between the toxic fire pit and the world outside. The orange glow of the fire entered his brain. The heat penetrated the coveralls and his clothes and his skin. He felt hungover, though he was still drunk. His brain was boiling its own pickled juices. His glasses fogged up and panicking beneath his mask, he thought of Esther deep in the spring ground. Wet, 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 dead. Her body saturated and bloated. Alvin, doing his utmost not to hyperventilate, found himself thinking about a trick she'd do for the girls where she'd reconstitute a pork rind. He now saw the pork rind and it was her flesh, reconstituted Esther. He seemed to hear her saying one of her maxims. Sometimes Sometimes all you've got got is a rock, and then you you have have to throw it. She was most generally right, even when he had refused to admit it. Alvin found a hose against the wall. Romy tugged at another hose. They had no choice but to risk it, and deep down Alvin hoped the whole thing would blow. They walked carefully, one man in front getting sprayed down by the one in back. They walked through a valley of smoke, the vapors of a dying sun, chemical evil, a man-made shadow of death. No talking, no gestures, only movement pure and synchronized, chemical selves. Bert was in there uh, with little hand pumps, putting that kind of fire down, those smoldering fires out. They soaked beams and boxes, moving toward the orange glow, where Alvin was quite sure that the devil waited, that sucker with eyes that shone blue, like plutonium gone critical. Well, unbeknownst to us, you know, they had set up a command post, the, the top managers had set up a command post outside at one of the guard posts. You can't have type A personalities sitting around a room very long before they start making decisions. Outside, they exchanged air masks and men ran Geiger counters up and down their bodies. They re-entered the building and continued to soak. Time faded. Hell was constant. An eternal flash. They spoke with a silence that Alvin knew he would always remember, as if they had worked their entire lives to understand the sound of wah, wah, wah. Alvin stepped beneath the glove boxes into the culvert-like sheep dips, the radioactive sludge soaking his legs. And on the other side, Romy sprayed the muck from Alvin's legs as if to say, we are not going to die, Alvin. Not today, anyway. So that was, you know, they had to come out of the building to change the air bottles, and they had to clean the bottles, and they had to refill the air. So there was a lot of things going on at the same time. 
He loved Romy as if they were conjoined twins who separated as they stood and walked from the tepid primordial soup, the ocean boiling at their backs, lava bottom, innocence. They smelled of human ooze and chemical brine. Alvin's stinging eyes focused on the glow in the mist. He felt something hit his shoulder and he thought, oh God, this is it, the roof is caving in. He looked for Romy in the smoke. Ceiling tiles clung to Alvin's coveralls. He dropped his hose and swatted at the tiles, thinking that he might be crying, but he couldn't be sure, not with the stinging in his eyes. He looked down to see that the hose was charred. The damaged hose flailed like a snake, rising and spitting. And then, as if struck, it spun its head around. Romy turned off the valve and they walked toward the double doors. It's dark because electricity has been turned off. When they exited, the Geiger counters said they were too hot to return. You got someone else that's going in, Romy said. I don't see anybody waiting in line. We started the job. Alvin stayed quiet, and though he hoped that someone would physically stop them, he turned and walked toward the building. He would later think, how many times did they exit and re-enter, exit and re-enter? Hell was walking out and choosing to return. You know, the characters in Radio El Dorado, even their attempts at heroism are clumsy at best. And they second guess themselves and self-sabotage when they undertake acts that we might think of as being brave or courageous. They know that their bravery is not pure, that there is something undercutting that. Maybe you could call those competing desires in a way. They don't want the responsibility. Inside, they followed the glowing arrows to the glove boxes and began again on the Benelux. The sound of the alarms pulsated with his heart. They sprayed and the glow faded and diminished. Alvin smiled, perhaps a smile of relief Perhaps he smiled with the realization that his entire life was a chemical spill. A blue light flashed. Time stopped. There she was, Esther, the blue of a pale sky, 
untouched by clouds and descended from heaven where she had made a deal with God to punish Alvin. He felt Blue Esther's embrace and he thought, this isn't so bad, this dying. In our, in our uh, uh, indoctrination, in our training at Rocky Flats, they talk to you a lot about uh, criticalities. And, you know, if you see a blue flash, you might as well, you know, kiss it goodbye. Because if you're that close, you're, you're, you're in trouble. We're talking with writer Ty Jagger about his novel, Radio El Dorado. We'll be back in a moment. I'm Jay Bradley Minnick, and you're listening to Arts and Letters. Let's return to our discussion with writer Ty Jagger and his panoramic novel, Radio El Dorado. Alvin finds himself in a place where he's sent into the fire and he follows through. But even in following through, he accidentally takes off that mask. I get an interesting sense of Alvin because on one hand, he's very stoic with his daughters, yet he drinks and he knows he wasn't a very good father at times. He knows he wasn't a very good husband. He kind of believes in America, but doesn't. I mean, it seems to me like he's at a point in his life where with his wife dying, the introspection is overwhelming. He had always imagined that death would hurt so much more than it did now. He didn't feel any different from the pain and tired numbness that he had felt for hours. How many hours? Without thinking, he removed his mask and her mouth moved next to his ear, though he could hear nothing over the pop and crackle of static. For one word before she died, oh, she might have offered love or advice. Bon voyage. Safe journey, Alvin. Yes, she was the dead one, but she had known very well that he would be the one cast adrift. He hated her for dying, and he hated himself for turning her into a person who would so willfully instigate his suffering. And that's, that's rather startling when you're thinking about this anyway. You're thinking about criticality, and you're, and you're thinking about the blue flash, and all of a sudden the room lights up in blue. His throat felt as if he was breathing in her contempt. Esther in his arms now looking for all the world like Romy in his mask and coveralls. With clumsy hands covered two gloves thick, Romy fumbled with Alvin's mask, trying to fit it back on his face. The straps caught. Alvin was tired and confused, his fingers numb, fat with his own sweat. He was shaking and ready to fall on the ground. He felt Romy's hands on his head. The mask was back on. And only now did he realize that the taste in his mouth was the orange smoke. He and Romy pulled away from each other, embarrassed and shaking. He turned to see two men in suits and respirators. One held a Polaroid camera. The blue light signals the end. It was just the flash, Alvin. They were just taking a picture, Alvin. They were just recording. Recording, recording the, the avoidance, avoidance of, of criticality. criticality. Thought it was critical. I believed I was dead. I believed it was you, Esther. And uh, my partner and I, after jumping in each other's arms, 
settling down again. I thought, well, you know, it doesn't feel bad, whatever it was, I still feel okay. So we walked out to, to see where everybody else was, and we see these guys dressed up, and they, they have a Polaroid camera, and they had taken a Polaroid camera picture of the interior. Now, the flash made it a blue flash, so that was, that was kind of startling. How had he arrived in the showers? He scrubbed his skin raw, over and over, dipping a brush into water heavy with bleach, still hot and scrubbing again. He was living in the shadow of his own shame, and now he was pretending that he could scrub it off, remove the stain, move the mountain. Alvin scrubbed the hair from his skin and then the skin from skin, and when they tested him, his legs were still hot. Alvin scrubbed until there was virtually no skin, but he was careful about not drawing blood. Because if you drew blood and you were still hot, the heat, the contamination, the radiation entered your bloodstream. And then where were you? We have never had a criticality rocket flash, regardless of what people think. Uh, various people have, have, uh, have tried to prove by sample taking and what have you that we've had criticalities uh, we have had not we have not had uh... so alvin's experience in the chapter where he's fighting the fire very much comes from a composite of true stories about guys who were security detail folks and went in and had to fight this fire. Naked, the water stinging, Alvin wanted nothing more than to be in her bed and to let himself cry in her arms. He wanted to go back to when there was no poison between them, back to the very start when he was working on the farm and she was still in school smirking at him, daring him and he'd have to say your name just to keep from falling to his knees. But he had craved the canned heat, despite the anger and the shame that followed those many mornings, the tinder of daily spite that left their love in ashes. No fire, nor light left, not even the suggestion of warmth. Esther might have said goodbye. Alvin might have said more. You're beautiful, and our babies are beautiful, and the farm is beautiful, and we are beautiful. But he had not. They wrapped his hot leg in a black plastic bag, and he waited until 6 the next morning before they let him go home. On the plastic bag, they had affixed tape that said, Caution, do not enter. Before they let him start his car, they reminded him that when off-site, he should discuss nothing of what he witnessed. Alvin knew this. Any fool knew this. He hadn't seen Romy since they had exited the complex. On the drive back home, his muscles ached from the adrenaline crash, and his mind was dull. He longed for sleep, and yet he was afraid of ever sleeping again. He yawned, his throat scorched like a stovepipe. 
On the radio, he searched for Ursula's voice, but the sun was rising and she had already signed off and was, he hoped, sleeping soundly and safely. Maybe she was at home, she and Vivi just girls again, sleeping in the same bed, stuffed animals and dolls piled high. Alvin stared at the sun as it rose from the flatness of the plains, and looking at the twilight moonscape of the fields surrounding rocky flats, he was certain that he had seen her. It didn't matter that it turned out to be only photographers. The ghost could do whatever it damn well pleased. Esther, you talk about her in so many ways. Mm -hmm. Like Esther, the blue of pale sky, untouched by clouds and descended from heaven where she made her deal with God to punish Alvin. Esther, the light that appears and kind of guides Vivi through a variety of issues. Esther, the warm presence in the house. Esther is many things, at least as you write, Esther. And her ghost had come back and said, Suffer like you made me suffer. He couldn't blame her, not when he looked out from his tower of sin piled so high. From this height, everything was clear and miserable. Then he smelled the bleach, and the sobbing came so hard that he pulled over to the side of the road. Not long after this, he's kind of giving up the farm. He doesn't give it up, but he wants to sell it. He does want his daughters back and to hang out with them, but they come with this rogue band of, you know, bandmates as well as, and then the bandmates invite some crazy people. To me, this seems like a turning point in his life where he, he decides, well, I don't know if I could do anything better or different, but maybe I could try. I think, you know, he does come out of the fire feeling stripped naked in a way, right? He feels vulnerable. He also, in his smallness, he sees the fire as, as a way for Esther to punish him again, as she did when she died without saying goodbye. goodbye or saying, I love you. But Alvin also did none of those things for her. And so, you know, he comes out of the fire totally feeling reduced. But I think that he also is wondering, did in this flash, did she come to visit him? It was just the flash, Alvin. They were just recording. They were just recording. When he regained his composure, he noticed that his hazards were flashing, though he didn't remember having turned them on. He put the car in gear, the sky, fantastic fiery orange. 
He settled back in his seat, the car casting forward into the radiant morning and the hangover that would be the rest of his life without her. That sentence into the radiant morning and the hangover that would be the rest of his life without her. You know, in that sentence, I wanted to even capture what seems contradictory is happening. We're constantly in a world where people die and we are constantly in a world where people are being born. And he is looking for warmth and the hottest fire in hell doesn't keep him warm. No fire, no light left, not even the suggestion of warmth. But he's been in the heat, the canned heat. Yeah, they in the canned heat. But he, he wants warmth, and heat and warmth are maybe a little bit different, right? Right. Yeah. In a way, Radio El Dorado is a ghost story. I mean, her presence is there in many ways. And I guess that part of what I was thinking about is that even when we're alone, we are affected by others. And Esther has left such an imprint on particular people that she manifests, right? Even after her death, she manifests her presence. So yeah, it's it's odd because I don't think that I, I set out thinking that I was writing ghost story, right. but in a way it is. I it mean, is. it's not a ghost story in the sense that, you know, the ghost is what we're chasing after right. in the story. Right. But, but that presence, once it showed up, it didn't go away. It seems to me they all want her to say goodbye. Exactly. She, she refused to say goodbye in any real way. She might have said goodbye, but she never did. Right. They conjure her presence in a way. For Vivi, she's upset when she finds out that Alvin has seen her mother because Vivi is the one that should have seen Esther. That's the way that she understands it, right? Why would she show herself to Alvin and not show herself to her oldest daughter. It's Vivi that insists that they have a seance and try to, to commune with Esther. A seance, she said. We should have thought of this nine months ago when dad said that he first saw blue Esther. We'll have a seance and conjure my mother's spirit. <laughs> God, Alvin said. How many times can you go off the deep end without understanding that there is a shallow section of the pool, Ursula said. We've been here for three quarters of a year, and we've had how many ghost sightings, Vivi said. No, I wouldn't. You said that you saw a blue light, Dad, Vivi said. It was a camera flash. Well, I've seen her in the woods, and I've seen her in the house. She sat right there in that chair that Mac's sitting in. And I heard her play Eleanor Rigby on the piano, and so did Mac. Alvin removed his glasses and wiped at his eyes with a handkerchief. Is that the one about how nobody came to the funeral? It's the one about a woman who lives in a dream, Ursula said. Because she's lonely and therefore wears a mask, Cynthia said. It's so when I think of her now, Alvin said. I can't separate the woman from the ghost. Phoebe reached for her father's hand. She said, I understand completely. Our grief has brought on paranormal activity of all sorts. The solution is to make a formal invitation. That's why we'll have a seance. They discussed where to find a medium, and eventually 
Mac reluctantly gave up a name that as soon as he said it, he wished he had not. Of course, Phoebe said. Susanna Moda. Good thinking, Mac. One week later, on a cold February evening, Susanna Moda arrived at the one farm. Alvin helped Susanna remove her jacket and she looked around, commenting on the changes in the decor, the cyanotypes, the collages, the tapestries, and the smell of incense. The touches are slight, Susanna said. Less country and more city. Less cabbage and more danger. Susanna held the eyes of each person in the room, Alvin, Ursula, Keen, Pearl, Vivi, Cynthia, and finally Mac, who she offered a slightly pained look. This was jealousy. They turned off the electric lights and burned candles. Susanna instructed all to remove their shoes, both to show respect to the house's former matriarch, but also so that each of the participants might better ground themselves. Sitting around the table, they relaxed their sense organs, removing all worldly thoughts from their minds. They closed their eyes and meditated on the deceased. Focus on positive reflections. Develop within your mind a projected space where Esther, as you knew her, or as you understood that others knew her, might feel welcome. Those of us around this table, she said, come here in benevolence to communicate with you who are on the other side. Esther, it is you with whom we wish to speak. Hear our call. You might appear to us. Grant us the grace of your presence, the music of your voice. We wish you no harm, and we know that you would do nothing to harm us. A signal of your presence. Mac, who had continued unconsciously to pump the imaginary piano foot pedals, pressed his toes into a warm liquid. Cynthia whimpered. Did you see something? Alvin said. He cackled, cleared his throat, and mumbled, excuse me. Susanna whispered, Esther, I can feel you in the room. Her eyes continued to jerk. Allow us a signal, a sign. Let those that love you Good Lord, Alvin said. Esther's pulled water under the table. Oh, Cynthia said. I think my water broke. It's as if Esther has died and there's a rebirth. It's not as if it's Esther, but it's as if Esther's presence is in the children that are coming. Absolutely. I mean, I think that this harkens back to the beginning of our conversation where I mentioned that we always sort of have one foot in heaven and one foot in hell. And the, the mourning of Esther won't go away. Their grief won't go away. Mm-hmm. It might manifest itself slightly differently, but, you know, the birth of Darla and later Canyon, you know, they, they fill the space in some ways. For Alvin, they're filling the hole in his heart mm-hmm. that he caused and was amplified by Esther's death. 
you know, and I think they all see the children as, as the place where they themselves can start over. Broadcast from the studios of KUAR in Little Rock, you've been listening to Arts and Letters. Thanks for joining us. To check out past episodes, go to artsandlettersradio.org. Leave us a comment there and let us know what you've thought about the program. Thank you to composers, singers, and songwriters. Michael Shackelford. Thomas Aswick. With help from musicians, Jeff Killingsworth, Jonathan Jacobs, Lee Petray, and Chelsea Allen. A special acknowledgement to the Carnegie Library for Local History in Boulder, Colorado, for the oral history. Thank you to actor Mary Ellen Cubitt as Blue Esther. Thank you to Adam Simon of Simon Sound for the sound effects and for helping to mix and for mastering the program. Thank you to Sticky's Rock and Roll Chicken Shack for keeping music alive and well in Arkansas. Thank you to Gil, Reagan, Owen, PA Little Rock, a full-service law firm focusing on the documentation and closing of business transactions, business-related litigation, employment law matters, and taxation planning. Generous funding for Arts and Letters was provided by the Arkansas Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. Thank you to writer Ty Jaeger for combining the fictional with the historical, weaving the ghosts of the past with the cautionary present. For Arts and Letters, I'm Jay Bradley Minnick. Let's heed the words of Albert Einstein. The release of atomic power has changed everything except our way of thinking. Arts and Letters is a production of Living the Dream Media.